It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Welcome to the BritFlix.com podcast. Today I've got with me Cos Greenop. Hello, Cos. Hi, mate. You okay? I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well. Now, this is January 2015 when I'm recording this, and yep. I met Cos in uh, May 2014 at Cannes Film Festival. Um, so it's been a while. It has. It's been a while. It has been a while, uh, a long time coming, but we're here, here now finally doing it. Indeed, indeed. Now, you were working on a working on a film that you've you've written and directed called Wandering Rose. That's what you were there working at Cam, wasn't you? That's correct, yes. Yeah, so we before we go into details about that, do you want to just give us a quick summary of what that film's about? Yep, sure. Wandering Rose is about a young couple, um, Rose and Theo, who are escaping the city um, for a weekend away to the uh, remote Scottish Highlands, um, a place called the Cairngorms. Um, and basically, Theo sees it as a last chance to have... Um, some kind of romantic alone time uh, with Rose before um, she actually gives birth to their their first child. Um, but basically, the the, uh, the couple's piece is kind of disintegrated um, when Rose is confronted with um, some chilling memories from her past. Um, and basically, the weekend kind of all goes tits up and uh, descends into a living nightmare as uh, Rose is forced to confront uh, some demons from her past. Yeah, no, it's very it's very much a horror film, this, isn't it? Uh, absolutely, yes, yes. It's uh, not really gore or you know slasher. It's it's more kind of psychological horror. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. Now, like I say, we 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 uh, we met each other at, at Cannes last year. So, what happened? What has been happening with the film in that in in the interim period? What have you been doing, as it were? What was you know what was there any positive outcomes directly from Cannes, or has it been subsequent stuff to do um, with the film? It was actually it was actually totally yeah can can kind of changed the direction of the film totally I mean it wasn't I originally um, was never intended to go to Cannes with the film it wasn't until um, actually I showed it to we had um, a private screening with our one of our lead actresses well our lead actress Karina yeah. um, and she said have you have you thought about taking it to Cannes uh, me being from a you know a small village in Yorkshire you know I kind of you know you hear about Cannes Film Festival and it was like well. You know what? What would be the point in taking my my little film there? Um, and basically, um, she kept harping on about it, saying, "No, come on!" It like sent me all the the kind of deadlines of when to get accredited and stuff. So, so eventually, I kind of gave in to her, really, um, not really knowing what what was going on and and how, how kind of Cannes as a film festival works. Um, so, so yeah. Anyway, went along to Cannes and and actually went into the pavilion and uh, kind of got all, maybe a hundred copies of my film uh, out there with me as screeners and, and basically just went around the, the main pavilion kind of looking at um, distributors and companies that I thought would, would be quite cool to be, you know, either represented by or, or someone that can help me out, kind of looking at, at the companies that are distributed films that, that I watch and kind of that kind of market. Yeah. Um, 
so managed to get um, quite a few meetings with them. Uh, you know, it's always a lot easier when you're actually there face to face rather than sending a few emails out to people. You know, the, the great thing about Cam was that, you know, I was actually there and I had the DVD um, in my hand and kind of just said to, you know, I think, I, I think it was 15 companies eventually that I had meetings with, um, just kind of, you know, trying to, trying to sell my film to them, really. Um, so, so that was a really cool experience uh, in terms of actually being there. It, you know, I've learned more in kind of 10 days at Cam than, than I did at, at film school. Uh, about the actual about the actual industry because they never kind of tell you about that you know film school is all about being creative and kind of getting films made but they'd never actually tell you how the hell to to sell your film or the actual you know realization that it is a, a huge market and you know it is a business at the end of the day um so so yeah no that was that was an amazing kind of learning curve and then basically i think it was two two or three weeks after can um started getting emails back from distributors um and eventually um, got an offer from a company called uh, ITN Distribution. Yeah. Um, I actually own a lot of their DVDs. That was kind of how, I, how they sold it, was the fact that I actually, you know, the DVDs that I know come to the UK and get, you know, sold in, in um, shops and, you know, supermarkets and, and cool, cool. demand and stuff. So, so eventually, yeah, went with, went with ITN, kind of sold my soul to them, really. Um, and kind of, I think that was, yeah, kind of June, July last year. Mm. And then ever since then, they've kind of uh, taken it to uh, various film festivals around the world to try and get um, various companies to kind of, you know, go out and, and, and buy it off them. And I think um, as of, I think just before New Year's, we've sold to uh, the Middle East, Japan, South Korea, uh, the UK, and actually now we've got uh, a release date uh, in North America as well uh, with Entertainment One. Um, Fantastic. Who are, who are pretty, yeah, it's kind of amazing um, for them to hopefully, um, well, all being well, it'll be released uh, in North America in um, in May this year out on uh, DVD and uh, I think video on demand as well. So what film festivals has your film been shown at then? In, in um, I, think, I, I don't know whether it's, it's been shown. I know that they've taken them to the market. So I know it's been to um, Berlin. Um, that's, I think, next week. I think it's going to be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, also, um, where else was it? A Toronto Film Festival. Um, it was there. So it's kind of all, all the major kind of film markets that it's been, it's been played at. In terms of actual uh, okay. festivals, um, I actually... Again, me being a, a kind of not seeing the bigger picture, I didn't really um, send it off or, or kind of submit it to as many festivals as I would have liked to, really, um, yeah. because I kind of, you know, at the end of the day, I made the film as, as kind of a calling card for myself and kind of didn't think anything of, of film festivals, really, or, or really think that we had a chance um, at any of them. But um, we got accepted into one called Zedfest in um, California, yeah, um, and we actually won uh, three awards there, which was pretty amazing. One for our lead actress, Karina. Yeah. Uh, one for outstanding pr uh, producer, which was uh, for me, and then we actually won one for our um, our aerial shots as well. Um, Neil Willis from a company. Um, we actually used a drone rather than um, a helicopter, just saving on money. But he actually won an award for his uh, outstanding aerial shots. So, so I was going to ask you about that stuff, actually. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Yeah, no. So that was um, so that was pretty cool. So yeah, at the moment um, we're kind of just waiting um, for for the release in North America, and then hopefully the the European 
and um, kind of Asian market um, releases will follow um, in the, ne the next couple of months. Brilliant. Well, that's, that, that sounds like, you know, that sounds like every, everything's fallen into place, as it were, you know, from the, uh, from, from the, the idea of going to Cannes and then the fallout from it. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's, it's been such a big learning curve. I think I'll, I'll try and attend can you know, every year until I die now, just because it is such an amazing experience and, you know, such a, a massive learning curve, certainly for, for me as a filmmaker, you know, it's, you do you do learn so much about the industry there and and you know I've got you know full and ultimate you know respect now for my actress because if um, if I if she never had been pushing on about it you know I'd probably still be sat at home with a hundred DVDs not knowing what to do probably going down Leeds Market trying to trying to flood them. <laughs> so, uh, so well, look, let's 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 rewind the clock a bit then and have a look at how you you got how you started off into film. So I think. I mean, in terms of in terms of you being a being a filmmaker, what yeah. who who or what represents a tipping point for you wanting to be a filmmaker? I mean, like, are you a film or a director or an actor? Um, basically, it's it's quite a few things, really. I mean, I, cool. I used to do a, a lot of child acting when I was younger. Um, okay, I was kind of in a couple of TV shows and a few films and adverts and stuff like that. Having a wonderfully pushy parents, they uh, they they kind of got me into child acting. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't until really that I was I was kind of 14, 15, where I was kind of on these film sets and, and realising that I was far more interested in, in, you know, what the gaffers were doing or, you know, the, the camera assistants and, and people like that behind the scenes. I was far mm. more interested in, in that rather than actually doing the acting, which kind of worked out well because I was a pretty shit actor. Uh, <laughs> so, so it's kind of worked out well. But, um, but because of that, I kind of chose to do... Um, uh, A-level media. Uh, my my school results were absolutely dreadful, so I managed to blag on to an A-level media course at a college. Um, and because of actually doing that, I was doing performing arts as well at, at college as well as media. But uh, doing the performing arts, actually, I was able to kind of steal their camera that they used to um, to like record exams and stuff. Yeah. Um, so I kind of steal that every every kind of so often and go and make loads of short films with my mates. Mm. Um, and then having having kind of maybe I know a dozen kind of semi okay short films under my belt, uh, I actually managed because I, I certainly didn't have the grades, but I managed to blag my way into um, uh, a spot at the Northern Film School in Leeds to do to do a degree in film and moving image there. Oh, well done. Uh, so so that was pretty good. I mean, the course for me, I mean. I enjoy filmmaking because I enjoy being behind the camera. Being, I love being a storyteller and being creative. Um, yeah. What film school kind of does, and I guess it has to, you know, being a course, is, is talk a lot about theory of film and the history of film, mm. which, you know, I kind of understand is, is relevant for a degree, but in terms of, you know, actually being a filmmaker doesn't really help you. Is that uh, right? You don't, you don't think it adds any value? To... Well, not really. certainly not in terms of, of kind of helping you actually learn about equipment and kits and kind of getting your name out there because you know okay. you may be you may be you know the master of, of knowing what happens in Battleship Potemkin but at the end of the day if <laughs> you know you can't get your foot in the door of a production house you know then it's, it's no good to anybody unless you want to be a film lecturer I guess um, yeah 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 so, uh, so for me I kind of I use university as a time really as well to kind of do as much work experience as possible like there's a quite a few local production companies kind of around Yorkshire and I kind of just sent them all emails or went knocking on doors just to ask to do runner work for free mm -hmm. uh, because obviously being at uni you're there you know you're only there for a couple of hours a week so you had all this free time um, and I kind of chose to instead of going out and getting pissed and having fun which 
which did to a certain extent, but at the same time, you know, you know, you have to think about your future. So I was, you know, helping out doing like DFS um, sofa adverts and stuff. I was the runner on on a few of those and uh, okay. carpet adverts and stuff like that. Just trying to be on set and stuff, and you know, kind of working my way up uh, through the three years of uni. And eventually, after uni, I actually got offered a place at one of the production companies as an assistant editor. Um, and I kind of left university about six years ago. And throughout those six years, I've kind of done, you know, a lot of, of kind of freelance work as a camera operator and an editor. So I've kind of built up a resume of, you know, working with some pretty cool people. And, um, and basically... I've always wanted to, to kind of write my own feature and, and do it, but it's I guess it's all always about finding time to, to do these things. Um, well, just before before you get into that, let me just I just want to ask you a quick question on, on what you've just gone through there. Uh, now, for the for you know, we're, we're often told that you know that this we live in a time where everyone wants wants their, their career on a plate or they want it all yesterday. Uh, yeah. And doing things like what you described at the DFS and the carpet ads and stuff yeah. might seem like a world away in terms of somebody thinking they want to make films. So what was it you thought you benefited from, from doing that, that that's put you in good stead, you know, still I mean, to this day? The thing, it was, for me, it was, it was A, getting contacts in the industry because knowing that I was going to be leaving university soon, yeah. uh, it'd be quite nice, you know, just to do that. I mean, for me, my passion is, is being on film sets and actually being there. I mean, I know as a runner... You know, I think, you know, I became the best T-boy in Yorkshire, you know, <laughs> in my life is, you know, that is what you're doing. But I guess anything like that, you know, you make what you can of it. And, you know, although being a runner isn't, you know, particularly glamorous or particularly, you know, you're not being creative, but you're getting on sets and you're constantly learning, you know, you're able to ask questions to, to camera operators, to the directors, and you can kind of, you learn kind of subliminally through, through what they're doing, you know, if you... Mm. You know, you sit and pay attention to what they're doing, and I think anything like that is is going to help. You know, I'd certainly rather be doing stuff like that than you know working in you know HMV or the cinema. You know, I think got you, got you. being on a set's going to be far more helpful to to me career wise, definitely. So let's fast forward then to Wandering Rose. Yeah, and and like we say, you you wrote you wrote and uh, directed this, and I and obviously you were saying <laughs> you you produced it as well. Yeah, so you're. Uh, did you did you write the theme tune? Just I had to throw. Uh, I didn't. In. I didn't write the theme tune, sadly, <laughs> but I, I have just enough credits that if it came out shit, then there'd be no one else to blame. I guess. <laughs> well, look so. uh, from from the right. Let's 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 look at the writing first. Yeah. Um, where was the idea for Wandering Rose born? What where, where, what inspired you to, to come up with that? Well, basically, I've I've always been a rock climber and mountaineer, kind of since the age I could walk. My my dad's put me in uh, rock climbing shoes. Um, yeah. So it actually, I got to a point where I used to actually compete in in rock climbing. Um, and basically, I think it was a year and a half before I wrote the script. So I was actually in uh, quite a bad rock climbing accident in that I uh, totally wrecked my knee and had to have reconstructed knee surgery. Um, and because of that, I was actually bedridden for three months. Um, so I kind of thought to myself, right, if I'm never going to get this time where I can just sit in bed and do nothing ever again. So I was like, right, I've always wanted to write a feature film, so I'm going to use this time to do it. And, you know, I've got three months here where, where I can. And um, kind of after you know, watching as many of my um, Japanese and Korean horror films as possible, I still wasn't really getting any ideas as to, as to what <laughs> I wanted to write about. Um, I had some cool ideas for scares, but but no real story. Um, but basically, um, my family have got um, a camper van, which is actually featured in Wandering Rose. 
uh, my dad decided that I was, you know, I'd been in bed for maybe a month and a half, and he was like, right, we're going up to Scotland um, just to give give you some fresh air, basically. So we we went up to Scotland. I was still kind of bedridden in the back of this van. Um, and it actually, the idea came to me. We actually used one of the locations actually in the film. Um, we parked up on a on a top of a car park, um, and I basically began to get exceptionally scared. Like uh, my dad was fast asleep at the other end of the van, yeah. and the wind was absolutely howling and battering the shit out of the van. And I suddenly got quite scared. We're in this amazing, amazing place, but totally isolated from anybody else. And I kind of thought, with my leg all plastered up, I was like. Do you know what? If there is something out there, or if there's somebody that wants to get in the van now, there's not an awful lot I can do about it. You know, I can't even run away. So I begin to get absolutely terrified at the idea that there was something outside, whether or not paranormal or just a weird Scottish nutcase who wants to come mm. and kill me. Um, so I kind of inadvertently found a location and kind of an idea for a premise for a film in that, you know, it was just some kind of camper van holiday um, up in the Highlands of Scotland. Um, so basically, I thought, okay, well, let's look back at horrors. Okay, yep, let's have a, a young couple because they always do well in, in horror films. And basically, just started sketching stuff down that that weekend that I was in Scotland, and then came back to to Yorkshire. And um, kind of five or six drafts later, um, I'd kind of got yeah the final the final script together. What, what's your uh, what's your writing habit like? You know, is, are you are you an early riser? Are you a burn the midnight oil man? Well, um, I um, when I started writing it, I, to be honest, I literally just I wrote everything. It kind of it was like it was vomit on the page. Just anything that came into my head, I'd write down, and yeah. then I'd kind of think about kind of plots, plots later on. I mean, I'm actually currently in my second year of a master's in script writing at the moment. So looking back at Wandering Rose, I'm actually thinking, ah, oh, fucking hell, this isn't you know the great. You know, I could have done so much better if I'd had this learning. Um, you know, back when I was writing Wandering Rose, you know, just just about kind of you know, the arc of the story and planning each character and, you know, the actual what it is I'm writing rather than just thinking, ah, oh, that'd be a good scare, I'll throw that in somewhere. Or, yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea, I'll do that, da 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 da, da. So was, that's, I think that's probably why I had so many drafts of the script. It was just basically trying to make make sense of, of these ideas in my head, really, at the time. But, I mean, I mean but give, it, give a take. You've, you've really only got sort of three characters, haven't you, in, in the film? Yeah, yeah. So you, you, you give you, you you made it as uncomplicated as you could for yourself, didn't you? In a way, I mean, was that design or was that by accident that you came? Um, I think I think it was from a kind of everything really in terms of I thought right, well, if this is something that I'm ever going to make, then I want it to be as easy as possible in terms of you know if I'm funding this film, salaries for actors, um, but also I don't want to you know get onto my first ever feature film set and be you know, completely out of my depth with, you know, you know, 16 actors who were all looking for me for, for answers. So I guess in, in, I guess in that sense, yes, yeah, subliminally, it was definitely something that I, I must have done in terms of trying to make my job easier. And, and, and you, I think we talked about the off, off, um, no, in the beginning there about being a psychological horror rather yeah. than, uh, you know, blood and gut sort of gory thing. Yeah. Again, was that was that something from the outset or is that something that evolved as the idea took shape? Because, I mean, it's interesting you talk about how the story came about, but one of the main, one of the big themes that, that comes out of the story from, from me watching, well, from, from my point of view watching it, is obviously um, is, is um, having a baby, who has, who has the right to the having the baby, you know, the father, the mother... Yeah, you know, and, and all that kind of st you know, who has the right to have an abortion, who doesn't? Yeah, you know, all those kind of themes are kind of 
tackled, aren't they, within within your movie as part of you know the un- whatever whatever the evil is that's going on around it. Those yeah. those real human issues are are uh, are sort of tackled head on, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I personally I'm I'm not a fan of of kind of gore and slashes, and, and for me, you know, I was saying earlier, a lot of my major influences are are about you know are, are kind of uh, psychological um, thrillers or horror films, and and certainly with with kind of South Korean and Japanese horrors, they are you know far more kind of issue based than just kind of you know the typical American kind of gore fest that that you see. I did want to kind of give a message, and I thought as I was writing it, I actually thought this needs to this needs to be a real issue for it to be believable. If it, if it is just all in a head, and or, or it is something that's totally paranormal. Mm. I was actually finding that a lot harder to to write about, whereas oh, obviously with with something that is like this, you know, I think it's um, I was able to have you know lots of research. There's loads of of interviews online of of women who've had things like this. You had things like post-abortion syndrome, where you know that is kind of a form of schizophrenia. Yeah. Um, when a woman has an abortion, she you know she can you know she can become mentally unstable. So I kind of liked that, how it was kind of very much a human a human thing, how it was in her head, and it was just about the downfall of this girl, really. I can think it was actually a lot easier to write because there is so much literature on, on stuff like this mm. rather than all just being paranormal. And I think also when it's totally paranormal, it's, it's quite an easy get-out when you're writing. It's like, oh, well, you know, it's either, you know, all in her head or, or you know, it's something paranormal. I think, you know, when it's a real kind of issue, I think you do have to think a lot more about it because I think also people will, will pick you up on it if, it if it is kind of incorrect. I mean, I think, I don't know if you've seen the film Babadook. I have, yes, yeah. I mean, and I think that, I think there's one that does, does a similar trick really, doesn't it, where you could watch the film as a supernatural movie, but obviously one of the uh, things that comes through yeah. is... My, is my idea, when I first watched Babadook, it was one of those moments where I thought, shit, I wish my film was like that, because <laughs> it's totally one of the best films I've, I've ever seen, not only in this genre, I think it's an absolutely amazing, amazingly crafted film. It's, it's superb, really, really good. But, but yeah, I was kind of getting, you know, similar, not to, you know, say that my film's anything like as good as that, but, you know, in, in terms of that kind of mental state that that woman's in, certainly that was that was kind of what we were going for. Well, no, and obviously, obviously with, with the... With film being a visual medium, you know, mental health's a very difficult thing to show. So, obviously, supernatural elements, which can or cannot be in somebody's head, can be shown, can't they? I think that's the I think that's the great thing for cinema, isn't it? In a way, absolutely, I totally agree. Yeah. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes, and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Um, so let's let's move on in terms of your roles. So when 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 you when you'd finished the script and you handed it over to the director, yeah, <laughs> you, <laughs> you know. What the hell is this? <laughs> but what do you? I mean, is is part of? I mean, I'm guessing part of the writing process must have must have you know had had it had. Uh, had the director hat on every now and again, but but what was uh, it? Absolutely. I mean, I'd I'd never really call myself a writer. I mean, I I'd, I'd always see myself as a director. I mean, the thing is, I wrote it because I didn't know any of the scriptwriters, and I wanted to direct a film at the end okay. of the day. 
Um, so, so basically, yeah, I mean, the script was, was filled with kind of uh, directorial notes and, and shots and stuff, which I know, you know, obviously you're not, you're not supposed to do over the first, uh, first draft of the script, but, um, but enabled for me to see it in my head, you know, I was always, this was always going to be a script that I was going to direct. So I was going to say, you can do what you want if you're writing it for yourself, yeah, can't yeah, you? Yeah, exactly, you, yeah. No, you only have to look at, you ever look at a Jim Jamoosh script, my word. Um, <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't comply to any rules I know about. Uh, that, that page in um, what is it? Inglorious Bastards, where um, Quentin Tarantino just writes. Suddenly, they draw guns. Bang, 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 bang. Yeah, he knows what he's doing. It's fine. He went off because that's good. Don't worry, he knows what he's doing. Indeed, indeed. So, but when when you took over the reins as a director, how did that begin to? You know, when when the practicalities of you know compiling that shot list and and obviously working out the budget you had and things did did much change between that kind of lock script and the script you ended up shooting i mean yeah it kind of did i guess i mean i'd originally written it in hoping that i would try and get finance from from somebody or somewhere from it um yeah. so i kind of the scripts that i actually sent around to people i say send around to people I, I didn't really know anybody at the time but i sent it around to uh places like my local uh film company like screen yorkshire people like that um yeah. basically because i'm a nobody they sent to me to fuck off uh, because they didn't know who the hell I was, and I'd done nothing before. Um, so when it became quickly, when, when you when you when you say fuck off, what you mean is they didn't say uh, yes. They just didn't even reply. They didn't. I got nothing back. It was quite disheartening, actually. I mean, I don't okay. burn bridges with anybody, but of it, course, I don't know. It just wasn't great okay. uh, for for a first time filmmaker. But um, but as it became quickly apparent, was that if I was ever going to get this film made, I would have to kind of self fund it. Um, so as soon as I did that, I mean, the first kind of draft of the script, I had um, car chases in it, a massive car crash, you know, explosions and stuff, and it quickly became apparent that uh, there was no way that that was going to be able to happen if this film was going to be made. So mm. in terms of having a director's hat on, as well as kind of producing hat, yeah. I had to cut back a lot of, of that stuff and think, right, okay, well, here's the budget that I've got. What, you know, how can I tell this story? In its, you know, in its entirety, in its best form, with the, with the money that that we've got. So, so yeah, it did, it did change quite a bit, really. But um, you know, I, I still think that money shouldn't shouldn't affect how you how you make something, really. And what what would you say? I mean, this being your sort of, I mean, you jumped in with both feet, didn't you, making this movie? So, as as that ambition to be a film director, what do you think was your greatest lesson learned that you could pass on to others who were who were looking to follow in your direction, as it were? I think my greatest lesson is is not to kind of have doubt in yourself. I think the kind of three months leading up to, to filming, I think I maybe got two or three hours sleep a night, you know. There was that voice in my head every night saying, what the fuck are you doing? Like, you're totally out of your depth here. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, trying to think of ways to, to, like, not do the film and kind of think of, like, oh, my God, how can I get out of this? Like, you don't know what you're doing. And I guess it's just kind of having self-belief that, you know, this is something that I've wanted to do since the age of 14. You know, I've been, you know, this opportunity has happened. And if I don't do it now, I never will. And you'll regret it for the rest of your life. Um, so it's kind of just one of those moments where I just really had to have kind of self-belief in, in the fact that I was capable of, of doing it. And, you know, there, there was times we'd wake up in the morning on set. And it's terrifying when you get a whole cast and crew looking for you and thinking, right, what are we doing today? Mm. You kind of just think, shit, I've got to be sensible for the first time in my life. I've actually got to, you know, know what, what's going on. Because a lot of the cast and crew, you know, they've been on film sets before. They've, you know, a lot of them have kind of worked in the industry for 
for years. But I mean, one thing that I always had was the scripts. You know, I knew the scripts better than anybody else there. So I knew that everything that people were going to ask was going to be about that. So it's kind of that filled me with a bit of confidence, just knowing that in my mind. You know, I you know thinking I know the scripts, I know, I know exactly what I want, and it's just about getting getting that out there to you know be able to just share that with everybody else, I guess. I mean, one of the things that comes up a lot with people that come on a podcast is the nature of collaboration when you're making a movie. And yeah. obviously, like you say, I mean, there is there is that natural hierarchy which says, "What does the director think?" Ultimately, but but what were some of the some of the collaborations like with the other members of the crew and even the cast, maybe that that uh, helped you improve what you had? You know, where where what they were bringing to the party was something you maybe wouldn't have thought of or. I think it's just, it's, it's reassurance, I guess. And I get, you know, I'm certainly not one of those people, you know, certainly not being a first time, you know, filmmaker. I'd never, ever kind of not listen to anybody on a film set. I think, you know, everyone on a film set is equal as far as I'm concerned, you know, from, mm. from runners to, to the actors to director, editor, yeah, camera guy. I think everybody should be, should be treated equally. I mean, certainly on, on low budget film sets as well, you know, there's no, there's no kind of room for ego. And, you know, like I was saying, you know, a lot of the casting crew, they, they've done this all before, you know. I mean, Cameron Jack, uh, you know, I think his last film um, before mine was The Dark Knight Rises, you know. So <laughs> he's he been on this huge film set. So it's like, you know, anything that they could help me with, you know, of course I'd be, op- I'd be open to, you know. It's, it's a massive collaboration, you know. We got, you know, the makeup artist was there hauling up gear at mountains and stuff. And, you know, everyone everyone has to pull their weight on, on these kind of films and, and in terms of kind of creativity as well, you know, I'd, of course I'd, I'd listen to, to everybody's suggestions, you know. I, I know in my mind what, what I want, but at the same time, you know, if there's something I haven't thought about, you know, or, or something in the scripts that I didn't realise wouldn't work and they're kind of saying to me, actually, if we do it, you know, this way instead of that way, then, then of course, you know, I'm, I'm always willing to, to do, you know, to, to listen and, and to collaborate with, with everybody on the set, really. What proved to be sort of the biggest challenge then in, in, as part of the shoot? Um, the biggest challenge, uh, the, the worst challenge we had was actually, it was one night shoot where yeah. um, we were up on in a car park, actually where I, I had the original idea for the film. Yeah. Um, and it was absolutely freezing out. And we'd, we'd hired this stunt dog um, to come and, and kind of jump up into a car window and start barking. Um, but obviously, <laughs> being, being a stunt dog, it, it never did what it was pretty told to do. <laughs> The casting crew were tired and it started raining and because of our budget we didn't have any generators for lights so we just had these two kind of um, LED light panels um, which run off IDX batteries yeah. and they were running low and we were just thinking oh god we're never going to get this scene done the dog started biting the steering wheel of the car off and it was it was all a bit of a nightmare so you know there's obviously that old saying never work with kids and animals but um, you know I kind of thought you know it's a stunt dog it, it should be able to do what it's it's told to do, but, um, but sadly it, it didn't, and it was it was quite challenging working around that in the edit. But um, but I mean, it looks it looks okay in the end, but it didn't do exactly what it wanted to do. But that that was a tough tough night, definitely. Now one of the, one I, I had I had a chat through social media with uh, with your leading man David Wayman. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, just 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 to just to see if there's anything I should ask you about. And, right. uh, and it was one. It was one of the things that I was going to talk about anyway. But he said to ask you about the canoe scene. Now, before right. we go, before we give me an answer, we were just talking off um, off the podcast, and I was, it's like the it's the third canoe scene I've seen in a British movie. It's uh, in, in the last twelve months, which is kind of surreal. So, 
Anyway, explain to us what because obviously that's that survived the, the shoot, didn't it? And obviously that's that that must have been reasonably technical to try and shoot a scene of two people canoeing down a stream. Uh, yes, it was. It wasn't. It, you know, in in my head, I kind of thought it'd be a lot easier. We'd have a following canoe, and it'd be it'd be easy. Um, but all of a sudden, you realise you're in the middle of summer in quite a touristy place, and everyone and their uncle have also hired canoes. So oh my try word! <laughs> And this kind of isolated, you know, shots of people with canoes is always a hassle. And then because our two lead actors had never been trained in the art of uh, canoeing, um, it was very difficult to get timings right. So if we'd set up like a tripod in, in the water, by the time they've got to their, their lines, they're either too far away or too far behind. So I kind of made the executive decision to um, strip down to my uh, boxer shorts and just get in the water um, and had had the rig on my shoulder, so I could just slowly kind of follow them in the water uh, mm. and and get the shots. But um, but yeah, it was it was very very tough actually, and the water was absolutely freezing. Uh, <laughs> I think we had to put a lot of stabilisation on those shots because my arms were shaking so much because of the cold. But um, but no, it was it was certainly a challenge. But I mean, again, you know, we have got some aerial shots of them in the canoes, and I guess it it just adds more kind of production value. You know, of course, no, no, it's it's much more. I mean, you could have. It's that thing. I mean, and the reason I, I it was. I, the first one I noticed him was, have you seen the film Svengali? Uh, I haven't, no. In that one, they go. He, he has to go and have a chat with somebody who's fallen out. It's about a band trying to make it in London, and he, he pays off back to Scotland, and he goes out on a lock, and they're having this heart-to-heart, but it's obviously right. two canoes facing each other, which is a much more interesting shot, cinematically yeah. speaking, yeah, than if they'd sat, sat in a poor bar, sat on a park bench, you know, and I think yeah. that's the thing. And, 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 and it's interesting you say one of the challenges was actually the fact there's hundreds of people around, and for you shooting yeah. the movie, one of the important things is these guys are isolated, isn't isolated. it? That's one of the. Yeah, that's, one of that's the... It. I think it's the most busy, busy tourist spot in in Scotland. I mean, you know, there's a reason I've been going there since uh, since I was a kid because it is such an amazing location. Um, but you do you do quickly forget how um, how busy it does get. So so we were we were kind of shooting, you know, at the very morning. I think the the final uh, one of the final shots in the film is actually our lead actress walking onto a deserted beach into the lock and I think we, we were up at kind of half three for that ready to shoot bang on um, bang on at five o'clock bang at the at sunrise so me and her you know we're, we're getting into that lock at kind of five in the morning and uh, she was an incredible actress Karina absolute trooper just wading into that water I know there's certainly a lot of actresses out there who you know who wouldn't even you know think of, of doing something like that so full few, full kudos to her for, for actually going in the water um, but it was, it was, because, I mean, otherwise that, that beach, you know, we'd have waited three more hours and it'd be heaving full of, full of tourists. So yeah, yeah. we didn't have the money to kind of close it to the general public. So we were kind of shooting around, around them. But, but luckily everyone in Scotland, everyone who kind of asked permission for were, were absolutely wonderful to us and uh, really, really amazing and just couldn't have been, couldn't have been nicer. Is that something you planned or is that something you realised you had to do while you were doing the shoot that the earlier morning stuff was part of how you're going to get these... Sort of isolated shots, or was that something that you'd already had sort of penciled in? I, I, we'd, we'd all we'd already kind of penciled in that we'd we'd have to be up at first light, and because we had so much to shoot. I mean, we were actually only in Scotland for two weeks. Wow, that's uh, a hell shoot, shoot a feature in in that time. Really, we mm. knew that we had to you know use as much daylight as possible. Really, and because you know we didn't have any generators for lights at night or, or anything like that, and because we were working around such a tight schedule, uh, we automatically just assumed right. First light is at five oh five, so we need to be up and kind of ready to shoot, shoot for then really. Um, 
Well, for the so, technical for the technical people out there, what was you actually, what cameras were you shooting on? Um, well, actually, we we shot it on a uh, we hacked a Lumix GH2. Um, okay, okay, I've worked with them. I think, yeah, I think we were one of the first. I think a digital filmmaker or somebody said that we were the first in the country to to shoot on one of those on a feature, which was pretty cool. But yeah, you must be. It really, it was, it was just because it was a camera that we'd had. Me and the the DOP James Fuller. Um, He's actually just had a kid today. I've got to say congratulations to him and his wife, Cara. They had a kid this morning. So congratulations. Cool. Um, but anyway, yeah, they've um, yeah, it's, it's a camera that he bought, um, and we kind of we thought about shooting. You know, it'd be nice to shoot on a Red or an Alexa or something like that. But a budget and B, you know, we we are going to be in locks. We're up mountains. You know, we, we need to have something that we can you know shove in a rucksack and and just you know get up and go with really. And and yeah. we'd actually shot. Um, it was like an outdoor shooting, you know, like a tough mudder type thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But actually, been the shoot with with uh, with the GH2 for for one of those, and uh, we were kind of blown away with the footage. We were originally going to use a, a Canon 5D Mark III. Yeah. But I just thought, well, if we've got this camera here, and you, you know, we've got all the lenses, we don't need to to hire anything. Let, let's just use this. And then we we heard about a, a driftwood hack, um, which basically ups the um, the megabytes per second. Um, on it, so essentially, you know, we're shooting at kind of you know decent quality um, for a camera that cost us eight hundred quid. So no, 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 you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know the production values are really strong. Yeah, no, it was. I mean, I mean, that was it. At the end of the day, I thought you know it gave us the the look that we wanted and, and at a price that that we could get. I think there's so many people. That was one massive thing about film school that I hated was everyone said, oh, you need you know you need the, the best equipment to shoot with and. You know, I think a lot of people, you know, if the story's half decent, if you're shooting somewhere in Scotland, it's quite forgiving on, on quality. But I think if, you know, you do a bit of research and kind of understand kit, then, you know, it's, you don't need to spend a fortune, fortune on it, really. No, no, no. Your, your, your film obviously testimony to that. Um, now, <clears throat> one of the things that, that, that makes me see, having what you've told me now about your, your, what you consuming your, uh, your South Korean and Japanese horror films is yeah. the, the use of CGI in the movie that sort of brings the, the element of is, is, is it is not supernatural, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. So what, how, how did you get that into the movie? What was, what was the... Um... Well, basically, I mean, basically we, we needed something to kind of show that, that Rose's mental state wasn't quite there. And we kind of, we'd come up with a lot of ideas um, for, the, um, for the figure. Um, mm. But I think at the end of the day, I mean, I mean, both me, it was actually James, the, the DOP, who actually did the, the figure CGI, yeah. Purely because we'd done um, so much research on it, and then we kind of got quotes from people, and we just, I, to be honest, we didn't realise how much it, it would cost to to do the CG. Um, so sadly, it was um, you know me and James kind of very frantically just trying to come up with anything um, <laughs> when we were there. And I mean, sadly, that that was one thing. You know, I wish you know if we had had more cash, then I'd, I, it would have been nice to to spend a bit more money on that. But but sadly, it was kind of something that that we did quite quickly, and also. Um, we kind of run out of time as well because we literally, in terms of in terms of the film, it was you know if it was paint terms, it was dripping wet when we went to Cannes with it. I think you know, <laughs> the final on it was maybe a few hours before before we flew out there. Yeah. Um, so uh, it was just uh, yeah we ran out of time sadly with with the CG because it's not you know I think it worked in some places and then in others it, it's you know it's not as great as as we'd have liked it to be. But but like you but like I mean, to you Adam, you said, I mean but like you said I mean it, it it reflects what we're meant to see which is what's going on with Rose so yeah yeah it, that's that's it at the end of the day but yeah it, I mean that that is essentially what it is but 
but it just in terms of it, it, the looks wise um, and actually how effective it is at scares. It's you know I, I know you know I know I know in my mind is that you know if we'd have had a bit more time before can or you know a bit more cash to spend a bit more time on it. Um, then, then I think it would it would have been better. But, but you know, I, th- I mean, I think like like every film, I think every filmmaker would can see that in their own film. I think it's the whatever what else I could have done if I don't if I'd had more time and stuff. I think, but it, it it holds well together. Now, the thing that does that does up the ante in terms of your production values is your aerial shots. Yeah, um, you know, no kidding there. You know, there's there's something that you know, God, five years ago maybe, you know, definitely ten years ago. Would have been very hard to achieve on the probably the kind of budgets you were working on, but now obviously with the, uh, I mean you tell us tell us how you got. I mean there's some. I mean you've got. I mean I'm presuming the drone you used was for all those kind of sweeping shots where you're driving through the 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 highlands and it's we're kind of just seeing them go away in a huge cinematic shot sweeping shots. Is that yeah, all? Absolutely. I mean I I kind of read somewhere it was actually. Uh... Typical uh, student filmmaker book this, but it's Robert Rodriguez's Rebel Without a Crew. Okay. And he, he goes to say that when he went into meetings, he, he often heard that, that producers and financiers would, would watch the first 10 minutes of a film, and then that would be it. So he had to make the first 10 minutes amazing. Um, right. so basically, for me, it was, it was about the aerial shots. You know, we were shooting somewhere as, as beautiful as the Cairngorms. Yeah. I wanted to show it off to, to the best ability. And actually... It was a massive decision, really, because it was actually a third of our budget we used. Um, really, that's interesting. Yeah, um, but it was it was um, an aerial drone company. Uh, these guys called Sky Power, um, who I got in touch with, and um, yeah, they came over for two. It was two days actually that we spent on just doing aerials, kind of tracking the camper van up the highlands and getting some generic sweeping shots yeah. um, of the highlands. Because I thought, you know, if I have these in with the opening credits. You know, on a big screen, you know, automatically it's going to kind of grip grip the audience, and also, you know, so we know exactly where we are. But also, you know, the production value wise on them, you know, it just it just adds, it's, it takes it to that next level. Essentially, I think um, certainly takes us to the you know where people you know won't believe what what we shot the film for price wise as well, uh, which which is what I wanted to achieve. And and you know they do they do look stunning on the film. It's it's something I'm I'm particularly proud of is the aerials. Well, no, and also, I mean, it shows. It shows. I mean, as well as production values is something that we get, but obviously, it, sh- it shows you had a, a level of ambition with what you were trying to direct, wasn't it? As well, I think that's the thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think there's, you know, you know, you, I, again, you use what you got, and as I say, you know, it was a, a massive, you know, decision. There was there was people saying, look, do you, do you really need them? You know, if you don't need them, we can spend, you know, possibly even another week in Scotland um, shooting. Um, mm. But I kind of knew that, you know, I think from a very early on in my head in the initial writing of the scripts, I had, because I knew the location so well from kind of going there as a child, you know, I had this idea in my head of these amazing landscapes being shown, shown off to the, the kind of best ability. So, um, you know, it was, it was a massive risk um, in, in getting them, but, but, you know, I certainly think that they that, that paid off. I no, think, no, no, I think your gamble was right, though, wasn't it, in the end? Yeah, yeah no, definitely. <coughs> so then, remind us what's what's next then for Wandering Rose. Remind us where you're up to in terms of Wandering schedule. Rose is yes, um, going to be released in uh, North America with Entertainment One uh, this May, mm-hmm. uh, and then I think um, it's June or July um, it'll be released um, rest of the world, kind of uh, certainly UK um, and yeah, South Korea, Japan, um, and the Middle East. Cool. 
and it's going to be going to be released on DVD and video on demand. We'll make uh, sure make sure you give us give us a nudge when it's the release date's coming up, and we'll get a we'll get a yeah. review on Britflix. Absolutely, uh, thank you very um, much. So what what about what's next for you then? Is there any any new projects you can that you can talk about at this stage or is this? Yeah, there's, um, I'm currently attached to shoot a. It's actually a World War Two film uh, okay. shot in Norway um, called The Border Guide. Um, okay. So yeah, I was kind of after after actually having one of the screenings of Wandering Rose, we had a, um, an industry screening. Um, I was approached by um, some producers who kind of saw what I was able to do on such a low budget with Wandering Rose. They were impressed. Um, that they that they they sent me over over the scripts the border guide and the kind of it's obviously very different from Wandering Rose it's you know World War II. it's I say it's World War Two but it's actually more around this uh, young boy um, who kind of sees it as his duty to help um, prisoner of wars who've escaped from camps in Norway across the border to Sweden um, to neutral Sweden. Um, and it's it's basically it's it's a fascinating story, all based on on truth. So I was on a diary as well. Um, so so hopefully um, we're going to start pre-production on that um, actually in the next few weeks. Um, and hopefully hopefully shoot that um, towards the end of summer. Um, so that should be should be really exciting. And then I'm also on a final draft of another psychological um, horror film uh, called The Passing Beacon. Um, okay. Which again I'm gonna I want to shoot in in the Isle of Skye. Um, just again for the amazing scenery and, and kind of have the same team that had Wandering Rose um, for that. So yeah, just trying to find finance and kind of uh, producer for that at the moment. So so yeah, it's it's all all pretty busy. It sounds it sounds exciting times, exciting times. Now finally, then, yep. um, do you want to recommend us a British horror film that uh, maybe deserves a bit more kudos or has been overlooked in recent years, or one from the archives that people may have forgotten? Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't know how how well it's been overlooked. I mean, it's been it's been very well kind of publicised, I guess, in in England. I don't know about about the rest of the world, but um, yeah, it's Elliot Goldner's um, The Borderlands. Um, okay, okay, yeah, we've had we've had we've had uh, Jen on the on the. the oh producer. really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I mean, to be honest, I'm not usually a massive fan of kind of found footage and kind of POV uh, horror films, but I, I watched this one. Um, Purely because it was actually um, in the same it was same um, issue of Digital Filmmaker magazine that the Wandering Rose was in, so I started reading about it. Okay, uh, um, and I was absolutely I was, I was blown away by it. Really, it was absolutely terrifying. One of the scariest British um, horror films I've seen for a long time. And although that it's um, you know POV kind of found footage stuff, mm. I, I love the idea that it wasn't just a typical kind of exorcism thing. It was more about an actual church and or you know a building that's kind of possessed. Uh, which isn't something you really see usually. It's, it's one person who who is possessed and then you know takes it over. I, I quite like the idea of, of a building. Um, I, I think I think as well. I think the reason it works as as you know as that found footage thing that gets a kick in. The reason this film works is that the found footage is integral to to what is happening in the film. Yeah, so yeah, they they've got cameras attached to their head. They yeah. put cameras in the church because they're investigating phenomena, exactly. aren't they? So it's yeah, exactly. No, is I think I think it worked really well, and the the acting in it is is first rate as well. You know, you get a lot of found footage stuff that's it's kind of very corny and hammy acting, but but I think it's it's really good. And actually, it's one of the I think it's probably the only found footage tape I've seen that's British as well. So I thought you know a big that up because it is. No, 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 we're big supporters of uh, of that one on uh, Britflix. So uh, yeah, no, yeah we is. saw we saw that one at Fright Fest back in two thousand thirteen. Ah, fantastic! Yeah, when it, when it premiered. Well, look, sir, thank you very much for your time. No, thank you for having me.
<laughs> hey, no, pleasure, pleasure, and 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 all the best of luck with the uh, with the release of uh, Wandering Rose. I think uh, I think it, it, it's it, you know if if it's coming out in in May and there you were with the you know like you say with the dripping wet in the paint analogy sense a film in Cannes in two in May two thousand and fourteen and twelve months later the world gets the chance to see it. I think that's a brilliant achievement. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's crazy. I mean, you know, as, as I say, I'm just a lot from Yorkshire. You know, I never expected anything like this to happen. You know, I made it for, you know, maybe a calling card in the future, but, you know, to actually, you know, hopefully in a few months see it in, in DVDs in shop is, is yeah, it's, it's incredible, really, absolutely mad. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you.